0: a slave girl who had a spirit which she predicted the future. He earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of her, shouting, He kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrate ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. May God once more grant us understanding in the truths of his most holy word. Now you will recall that on these Sunday mornings we have been working our way steadily through the Book of Acts, a book that has so many things to teach us in the modern church of our own day and age. We have been in the midst of the Apostle's great second missionary journey, and last Sunday we saw his arrival in the Roman colony of Philippi in northern Greece, the first visit of the Apostle upon European soil the first recorded gospel sermon in Europe that resulted in the conversion so wonderfully of the woman Lydia. And I think as we read these verses in the 16th of Acts, there is a sense in which we are standing at the wellhead, as it were, of a mighty river. For there is a sense in which here is the beginning and the Europe of today in a real sense, is the result of that first great missionary journey on the part of the Apostle Paul and his companions. Because if you know history at all, you will readily recognize that the gospel was destined to shatter and remold so many of the European institutions that have arisen to guide and inform the onward march of its history. And the gospel was and is still the basis of all its great liberties and hence of ours today in the United States. It was indeed the starting point of a work that has influenced the world ever since. Now it seems, as I said to you last Sunday morning, that the writer of the uh, Acts of the Apostles, the physician, the doctor, Luke, has given us three instances of conversion out of doubtless many conversions to Christ in that Roman colony of Philippi in northern Greece. And why has he done this? Well, without any question of doubt, it is because God, the Holy Spirit, would have us know how the good seed of the gospel took root in that pagan soil of Philippi. And we saw that Lydia, first of all, responded to the gospel because it was purposed in God's almighty providence that brought her from the mountains of Thyatira to the plains of Philippi in northern Greece. Because she was prepared by Paul's preaching, because above all else, the Holy Spirit persuaded her by the power of God that she needed to turn in saving faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this morning we have come to the second of these great conversions that is compassed in a very short number of verses that we read together. And God willing, in two Sundays time after the General Assembly, we will be returning to the third great conversion, the dramatic story of how the jailer in Philippi came to faith in Christ. Now I want you to look with me this morning then at this second great conversion of the slave girl as we see together the spirit of divination and then the syndicate for exploitation and finally that great and wonderful source of regeneration in the power and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely, beloved, here we have one extraordinary path to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, there is then the spirit of divination. And you will notice with me verse 16 at the beginning and also verses 17 through the beginning of verse 18. Let me read and refresh your memory as you have your Bibles open in front of you this morning. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, says Luke, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. This girl followed us, shouting, these men are servants or bondmen of the Most High God who tell us of the way of salvation. Now, beloved, from such an apparently casual introduction and casual incident as this arose the most weighty events of And the most mighty consequences for that apostolic mission in the Philippian city of northern Greece. Once when we were going to the place of prayer. It seems so casual, almost so unimportant, doesn't it? And yet the most weighty of events rested upon it. Now I want you to consider with me the circumstances and then the conduct of this girl, and then thirdly, the condition in which she was in. First of all, there are the circumstances surrounding this scene. Can you picture this scene with me again? Here are Paul and his companions who have arrived weary and travel long in the great colony of Philippi, where their lusty young soldiers walked its streets and the hard-bitten veterans from many a Roman war were seen there in its thoroughfares. And Paul and his companions had gone down to the prayer meeting, the prosuke in Greek, because evidently there were insufficient Jewish families in that Roman colony. It took ten to establish a synagogue. And they knew if God was going to be worshipped, the Lord Jehovah was going to be recognized at all, it would be outside of the city, down, as we think, by the river Gangaites, outside of the city gates, along the busy Weir Ignatia, the Ignatian Way that led right through that region onto the great center of Dyrrhachium. And in that lovely, lowly place, down by the river Gangaites, at a prayer meeting, Lydia's heart had opened like a sun, like a flower before the sun, to receive the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith. Now it's evident from what Luke tells us at the beginning of verse 16, that the apostles continued to frequent that place of prayer. And that in itself is a lesson to us, isn't it? Where does the mission of the church begin, beloved? It does not begin in great evangelistic campaigns and with great personalities preaching the gospel as so many people seem to think today. It begins biblically in the place of prayer. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, how did the apostle envisage the kingdom of darkness would be broken into by being in the place of prayer. And the answer to their prayers and his prayers began in a most unusual way. Because as they left the city to go to the place of prayer and began walking doubtless down the Weir Ignatia and all the carts bearing their produce, were coming into the city from the countryside. Suddenly, they heard a high-pitched voice behind them, almost a shriek, very eerie and odd, we would imagine, almost like a cat call, as we would say today. These men, cried the voice, are the bondmen of the Most High God who are bringing to us the message of a way of salvation. And it was a pattern that was to continue, Luke tells us, for many days. Now, what was happening? Who was this slave girl identified by Luke? And why was she acting in this highly extraordinary and unusual way? And that takes us from the circumstances on to the conduct of the girl herself. Luke tells us, you notice, that she was a slave girl who literally, in the original Greek, listen, had a spirit of Python. Although our new international version makes it more understandable by transliterating that term in the words by which she practiced predicting the future or by which she predicted the future. Now, what was happening, you see, was surely this. But a spirit of python in the original Greek New Testament, or a python spirit, had to do with the Greek god Apollo, whose temple was there in central Greece on Mount Parnassus, overlooking the Corinthian Gulf. And it was thought that the snake, the python of ancient mythology, was the guardian of the temple of Apollo. And there in that temple was the famous oracle of Delphi that was associated with predicting the future. And we read in books of ancient religion that the god Apollo was indeed one of the great Greek gods worshipped at the time. He was said to be the savior by healing people, but particularly the God of divination who had powers to see into the future and predict it accurately. And he was regarded by many as the head of the Greek pantheon of gods, the very head God himself. Now Apollo was thought indeed to be embodied in the snake, and to inspire his female votaries, his female worshippers, his female devotees, with the same spirit of being able to predict the future. And so, quite correctly, Luke describes this girl in the original Greek as being possessed by the spirit of Pytho, by being a Pythoness, as many would have called her in her own day. And so, you see, it was quite a common sight in that ancient world of Greece for men and women to see these female devotees of the god Apollo, the Pythoneses, going around and acting in a most unusual manner because they had the spirit of divination, the ability to predict the future. They were soothsayers. They were foretellers of the future. And they were consulted By politicians and leaders and statesmen of the time, by rulers and those who were wealthy, by the common people even, provided they had the resources to pay for her services. Miners would be told where to dig for the gold and find it with certainty. Merchants, for instance, would be told which was the propitious day to venture forth on the seas with their wares in order to gain wealth. Young ladies would be told which was the ideal day on which to be wed and so secure, a perfect marriage. Now her involuntary utterances, you see, were regarded as the voice of the gods And she was so much in demand, evidently, as we'll see later in this exposition, that she was not owned by one person. She was so successful that a whole syndicate of people had to combine together to gain the services of this girl and then to fatten themselves upon their illicit wealth. It's very interesting that Augustine, one of the church fathers writing in the 4th century, when such sights were still common, apparently, in Augustine's day, called her a femina ventriloqua. In other words, a woman with the gift of ventriloquism. And if that is correct, we are to see something of the ominous weirdness In this woman, whose catcalls followed the apostles everywhere, suddenly a voice would come out there from the oleander trees when no one was in sight. Suddenly it would arise from the road in front of them. Suddenly this weird shriek would be out from someone's gate by the roadside and they would look and there was no one there. And Satan thus practiced his divination and his evil as the apostolic band sallied forth. Now, the third thing I want you to consider is this, the slave girl's condition. You see, there are parallels, aren't there, with our own age. You see, the scriptures are not just written, as we realize for an age past, but every portion of them, beloved, is relevant for our own day. Do you say, well, this is something that occurred in the first century but has nothing to do with us now? What about the obsession we see all around us with occultism, the dark powers of evil being appealed to more and more by a society today that has lost its spiritual grounding in Christian truth and revelation, that no longer believes the Bible is the all-sufficient word of the unseen God? but becomes obsessed with the occult and the popularity of horoscopes in our daily newspapers and glossy covered magazines and more and more people we read about going into necromancy, communion with the dead, that by that they might find some order in their shattered lives, might know something of the future that is going to happen to them and make provision for it. This desire to peer into the future is with us today, as ever it was, in the days of pagan idolatry and heathenism in the Roman colony of Philippi centuries ago. And all beloved from the same source, whether it's the first century or the twentieth century, Rejection of the true God and His revelation inevitably leads men into idolatry and God gives them up more and more to the powers of evil that they've begun to espouse. And you see her condition in a word is not something to be desired. This is bizarre. This is dangerous. This is extraordinary to the point of being demonic because it involves the powers of darkness and of demonism. What was her condition? It was a condition in which the whole of this poor, demented girl's personality and inner self was submerged and under the control of the powers of evil debasing and demoralizing in all its effects here is a girl mastered taken hold of controlled by an unseen demonic power so that she acts in a strange otherworldly way and appears to possess supernatural powers by which she can accurately predict the future oh beloved never Underestimate the power of evil. Never deny the reality of Satan's power. This is not madness, but demon possession. And you know, I believe the only reason why we do not see this commonly in this Western world and in North America is because there are still restraining and powerful influences of the Christian gospel in our society despite all the direction that we are moving in toward evil so that Satan cannot manifest himself in this society as he does still in some societies of the world where our missionaries know in their own experience the very thing that is being described here. Now, you see, if this is true, here is the question. Why was her testimony correct? These men are the bondmen of the living God who bring to you a message of salvation. But before I deal with that question, as I will do later, We should note that the same abnormal behavior was characteristic of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, wasn't it? In Mark 5, verses 1 through 20, the man from the tombs rushed out to meet Jesus and his disciples as they arrived on the shores of Gadara, naked and demented, yet confessing him to be the very Son of God. What have I to do with you, the Son of God? Or in Mark 9, the demon-possessed boy who fell down in a foaming fit at the feet of Jesus whose father besought the disciples for healing and they could not. Or in Mark 1, verse 24, the man who encountered Jesus in the synagogue, the demon-possessed man, crying out again, What have we to do with you, Jesus, the Son of God? And it seems as though there in the Gospels, the demons knew and feared the Gospel of Christ, yet seemed compelled by some inner urge to confess him just the same, even though his power was sufficient eventually to confine them to hell. And thus it is with this woman. Let me just say to you and hold on to this thought. But I believe that confession is not drawn out of her by the greater power of the Holy Spirit simply. Nor do I believe that it's her human spirit striving to get the mastery over the demon spirit. But I believe it is a new means of mischief designed by Satan in order that he can disrupt the victorious progress of the gospel in Philippi, a new strategy that he is about not opposing the gospel, but you see, seeking to identify with it. An effort to mix himself up with God's work and identify himself with the gospel in order that from within he can damage and destroy it. Think of the absurdity, otherwise, of a demon spirit bearing witness to the God of truth. And so there is the spirit of divination, but beloved, secondly, there is the syndicate for exploitation. At the end of verse 16 and through verses 19 through 21, she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling, Luke tells us. Now you see the importance of this is that Satan seldom comes to attack the gospel with only one strategy. If his first strategy is to identify himself with God's work, his second strategy, if the first one fails, is then to resort to his normal methods of opposition, which is open and bloody persecution of God's servants. Now you remember what's been happening in Philippi. There's a work of grace going on. Men and women are being converted and brought to Christ and the devil never can leave an effective work of grace alone. That's why there'll always be opposition. There'll always be difficulties. For instance, in a biblical ministry in the church, don't look for instant success. It very seldom comes. And the reason is that Satan cannot abide a work of grace going forward to the glory of God without instantly planning strategies of opposition and destruction. And behind the poor, demented slave girl are these other tools and instruments of Satan, every bit as much as she was. Now look with me at three things quickly. There is exploitation and there is exasperation and there is exposure. There is exploitation at the end of verse 16. We may surmise, as I indicated to you, that so successful was this girl's fortune-telling that she had such a multitude of followers, her original owner was bought out by a syndicate of men who combine their wealth together and their income together in order to gain this valuable resource. And here they are, fattening themselves on the proceeds of her divination. And they are controlled, beloved, by avaricious and unscrupulous materialistic desires. Let the shekels roll in. What does it matter about this girl? She can go to destruction as far as we're concerned, so long as we make our fat profits. And they exploit for base gain the infirmity, if not the sin, of this poor, unhappy, unfortunate tool of Satan. That's the exploitation. And it leads, doesn't it, so quickly to the exasperation that we see in verse 19 and following. Their hope of making gain was suddenly gone. And the second thing then that we should notice is this, that when the gospel comes into such a situation of exploitation, There are remarkable things that happen. There are great changes that take place at the human level as well as at the spiritual level and not at all to the liking of unbelieving and ungodly men. Because when she, as a result of the gospel's intervention, stopped telling fortunes, these men stopped making them. And their base source of income suddenly dried up. And their source of illicit, idolatrous gain was suddenly gone and for good. And you see, I think what we are to learn here is this. As so often today, the unconverted are quite often not Influenced directly by the gospel at first. They're indifferent to it. But when suddenly their pockets and their purses are touched, they rise up in opposition to its message. Then they arise to action. You can see these men. They don't arise to action against the apostles because of a particular horror of Paul's preaching nor a particular special regard for the God Apollo and his worship. But the base motive of self-interest is enough to arouse the opposition of unregenerate men and women who see their prophets suddenly vanishing away. Beloved, let me tell you something this morning. The world is no friend to grace. The world is at enmity with God, essentially and always so. And nothing is so far from the heart of the prince of this world and from his desires as the honor of God's only unique son. And he will stir up every manner of opposition in his greediness and materialistic motives to oppose and silence a message that touches his self-interest at its deepest point. And this is the offense of the gospel so often to a corrupt society today. When William Wilberforce arose in the 19th century or the 18th century, To end slavery. It was the vested interests that were opposed to his enlightened policy of liberating the slaves. When Lord Shaftesbury in the 19th century rose up to gain for little children proper working conditions who were sent into the mines for 12 hours a day and sent up chimneys to climb to the very top and clean them. He was opposed by the vested interests of his day. And, beloved, today I tell you that wherever the gospel is making inroads into the drug industry and upon gambling and assaulting the lottery that is so common in our society and speaking against casinos and the abuse of liquor, and the evils of prostitution, and the undesirability and heinousness of homosexuality, wherever the gospel raises its voice, the true syndicate owner is sure to raise a violent opposition against it. Because the true syndicate owner is always the same. Satan, weaving his tissue of evil wherever he can. And so, you see, there is the exasperation that met the ministry of God's word in Philippi. But thirdly, there is the exposure, isn't there? And this is the really significant thing. Because what was happening when Paul preached the the delivering word so that the evil spirit left this girl, what was really happening is that Satan's cover was suddenly being removed. Do you see that? Satan, who could work with perfect cover to delude a multitude of men and women in Philippi by leading them into idolatry through the gifts of divination centered in this slave girl, suddenly his evil work was now exposed for all to see. He had been able to Practice his deception under the patronage and the protection of these wealthy syndicate owners in Philippi while he led the people into idolatry. But now it was all taken away in a single moment of deliverance through Christ. And beloved, if there is one thing that Satan, the arch deceiver, hates, it is this being detected. And his rage comes out with fierce violence and hatred against the instruments by which his cover was removed. My dear friends, you know it's a lesson for the church today, isn't it? Surely the church is failing in some parts of its duty if there is no opposition from those fattening themselves upon the sins of society. If the church today does not have a whole catena of people howling at its heels because of its witness to the liberating power of Jesus Christ, there's something wrong with our ministry today. We've become ineffective. We've settled down into complacency because there is nothing, beloved, so far from the world's desire as to see the honor of God in the salvation of poor and needy sinners. And so we come thirdly as I begin to draw to a close to the source of regeneration, not only the spirit of divination and the syndicate for exploitation, but the source of regeneration. Thank God that the story doesn't end where we've just ended. But in verse 18 we read, Finally, finally, After so much provocation, and probably because the apostle realized that when he cast out the demon spirit from this girl, there would be repercussions that would rebound through the whole of Philippian society, and the gospel would be in trouble. But finally, Paul became so troubled, in the King James Version, which I prefer at this point, he became so grieved but he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Now you see what is happening. Satan had discerned the threat. He had thrust forth his first agent into the field to oppose the victorious triumphs of the gospel in Philippi. And behind them were his second Instruments, in case the first should fail. And a conflict must inevitably ensue. And so it did. But you notice two things here. There is the rejection of her testimony. And then the regeneration of her soul. The rejection of her testimony. Paul was troubled. He was grieved. The scripture says, why? Why? Don't you think he should have been glad that someone was giving all this publicity, not to say notoriety, to the apostles' ministry in Philippi? He was grieved, beloved, because he saw it as interference with the gospel's progress, having the message of God advertised by a servant of the devil. In effect, Satan rubber-stamping Paul's preaching, how could that be? Paul did not want nor did he need his credentials verified from such a source as that. And he saw that the end result would inevitably be to discredit the gospel by associating it in people's minds with the dark powers of the occult the message of God advertised by a servant of the devil who was held in bitter bondage by that evil one. It would attract an attention that simply was not wholesome and associate the truth with error, light with darkness, freedom and liberty with the bitterness of satanic bondage. And what kind of a gospel would that be? Now, beloved, let me pause quickly and remind you that not all publicity for the gospel in our day ought to be welcomed or regarded as lawful either. Satan can transform himself into a veritable angel of light, but his purpose is always the same and unchanged. It's never to promote... It's always to infiltrate and destroy from the inside. And I have to tell you this morning that you and I need to be on guard because Satan so often seeks, it seems to me, to align himself with God's word and work in our day. In order to do just that, there are certain aspects of the church growth movement that profoundly trouble me to use the scriptural word, because they have the same effect in the end. They hinder and do not help the gospel. And there are some things, I have to tell you, in our denomination, that are of the earth, earthy. They never came from above. And beloved, what they need is not to be followed. They need to be exposed and corrected in the light of God's word and cast out from amongst us, not welcomed in. Because still that awful strategy of Satan is in place to deceive and destroy in the midst of an undiscerning church. Oh, we should pray for that spirit of discernment that the Apostle Paul so clearly had. But you see, there is not only rejection of her testimony, but there is regeneration of her soul. Look at the end of verse 18. And the Spirit left her, we read, at that very moment. Each day, the girl had shrieked out her weird call. These men are the bondmen of the Most High God who bring to you a message of salvation. And each day, with growing concern, Paul had listened to that awful shriek as it fell upon their ears until finally he by divine power exorcised the demon who had usurped the whole inner personality of this poor, wretched, demented girl. He invoked the name of Jesus. Do you see that? In that mighty name, he commanded all that awful bondage of the years to cease in a moment. And do we not sing still in one of our great hymns, Jesus, the name high over all, in hell or earth or sky, angels and men before it fall, and devils fear and fly. And you can almost picture the scene, suddenly she relaxed. Suddenly that wild, uncanny look left her face. Suddenly she speaks in a normal voice and not an unnatural one. And suddenly she has no longer that awful demonic power dwelling in her that gave her the ability demonically of second sight and soothsaying and fortune-telling. And she finds blessed deliverance instantly as that alien spirit is banished once and for all from her life. And in the words of the apostle from another letter, she has become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all has become new. Perhaps it's significant that Paul, in writing to the Philippians a little later, said in chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, as you remember, but at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And who knows whether in writing those words, he was thinking back to that outstanding conversion from the powers of darkness in Philippi years before. Beloved, as I finished this morning, surely she felt the touch of Christ. Undoubtedly, she was drawn to confess his name. For even though the text does not tell us in so many words, the very fact that this conversion is sandwiched between Lydia's conversion and the jailer's conversion indicates that she did indeed become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Oh, my friends, how many come this way. I believe we are living in days, as I indicated in my introduction, when this kind of conversion is going to become more common lo- rather than less common. And perhaps there's someone in the congregation this morning tempted by occultism and Satanism. If not that, tempted by the snaring coils of immorality, or adultery, or sexual lust, or whatever it might be, no less in bondage today than that poor girl was centuries ago, caught in the coils of some compulsive sin, and saying to yourself, I can never free myself from it. And I want to say to you this morning, there is deliverance. There is deliverance for you. In the name of Jesus Christ, come out of him, come out of her. The authentic note of the biblical gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ can deliver you. And we are to say, beloved, those of you who are in Christ, Jesus, the name high over all, in hell or earth or sky, angels and men before him fall, and devils fear and fly. That's what we need. In the midst of a world so often that is into the same things that we see here, and exploiting men sin to the full, what we need, is the Savior who is the source of regeneration. May God grant us in this congregation to have such a ministry as that. May God grant you, each one of you, to have such a commitment to Christ that you can witness and minister like that for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, this morning we are thankful for the word of God that has been our deliverance and will be the deliverance of many more. Help us, our Father, to learn these lessons, to apply them richly to our own lives, that the overflow may be to the blessing of the unsaved and the calling in of God's elect into that eternal kingdom in Christ, where there is perfect liberty in him.